Today is all about liquid biopsies. We have two experts who are each working on using liquid biopsies to help fight disease and bring about better patient experiences and, of course, outcomes. Because allowing multiple samples to be taken over time helps see the changes that are taking place over time, which could help early detection of diseases such as cancer. So liquid biopsy is what matters on today's episode of Discovery Matters. Here's Marta Herreros, Senior Clinical Study Lead at Kyogen. I'm managing some people and some studies that are focused on clinical trials. What they do is to prove medical devices that help patients uh, in diagnosis, prognosis, and response to, to treatment. I'm biologist. I did my PhD in, in molecular biology. From early on, I had a very strong interest on oncology. I want to become a doctor, but finally my interest changed and moved through understanding why cancer is developed. Cancer, enough said. What specifically drew Marta to oncology? I would say there is a very important personal part of this. Both of my parents, they had cancer. Um, they both die because of this while I was working on this. Uh, so, yeah, it was hard, but at the same time, it was a way to, to want it to improve what they were going through. Mm. Liquid biopsies are different from many other form of diagnostic technologies. They provide a way to detect and diagnose disease maybe much, much earlier. And earlier diagnosis means earlier treatment options and means better overall outcomes. That is the thinking. Okay, great. But why use liquid biopsy instead of standard tissue biopsies or scraping a mole or one of the invasive biopsies? We move from tissue biopsy to biopsy using a molecular biology techniques. And then with these techniques, we thought that it would be very interested to using these techniques into something that is less harmful to the patient. So this is how we move from tissue biopsy to liquid biopsy, because the type of sample that we are using is non-invasive or at least less invasive for the patient. Also, we can gain access to some parts of the body that cannot be reached by tissue biopsy. So we can go to brain tissue or we can go to some other places that is, is hard to biopsy often. So mm -hmm. the liquid biopsy allows us also to repeat the test several times during the course of the disease. And this is why we have moved in this direction. A pathologists use tissue biopsy. They are conscious of the limitations. And these limitations are? 
Well, you can't just biopsy patients willy-nilly whenever you want extra information, right? You, these are, are often sick people. So it should only be used when absolutely necessary. And what that means is that the tissue you take in a biopsy is incredibly valuable when it's been taken from the patient. You want to use it as best as you can. It's very challenging from a tissue volume point of view. There are a few forms of liquid biopsies. So what is Marta focused on and how does that process work? When we talk about liquid biopsy, we we are referring to a tool that uses liquid samples from the patient. Generally, we talk about blood, but with liquid biopsy, we also refer to urine samples or saliva samples or some liquids that we have in the brain. But yeah, blood is the most common one. Um, Urine is also a good sample, but still we need to overcome some challenges with Mm -hmm. urine because urine is generally contaminated with so many cells and so many uh, chemicals that we need to differentiate whatever we are looking for from something else. Mm -hmm. Once we have this sample, we will be looking at what we call biomarkers. These are some entities, some signals that are going to give us some information about the disease and most of the times this is genetic information about the patient about the disease in particular that the patient is going through so we need to find these biomarkers and how we find these biomarkers by using molecular biology techniques so the biomarkers can be circulating dna that have been released from the tumor and is traveling in the blood, it can be circulating RNA, it can be exosomes, it can be circulating tumor cells, so cells that have again have been released from the tumor and are able to escape from the tissue and travel in the blood. So when they find the biomarkers for bladder cancer, they have a few techniques. The more frequently used techniques is PCR, or polymerase chain reaction. And that amplifies or creates a much larger volume of the specific DNA sequences that you're interested in. So the same PCR that we were all taking during COVID? Exactly the same, yes. Right on. PCRs allow scientists to detect mutations by increasing the volume of DNA that they have to work with. The second, more recent technique, though, is next-generation or next-gen sequencing. Which allows us to read the DNA in detail to see whether a patient has a particular genetic mutation to give us an indication of the status of the disease. If a patient has a particular mutation, we can match the best treatment for them with a high probability of the patient responding to this treatment. At the same time, based on this this patient, the right one to give another treatment because uh, it can cause them toxicity or some other damage. All of this is allowing us to match the right patient because of some alteration with the right treatment. And as we've been learning, so much of this takes us towards a much more personalized approach to treatment for cancer. The holy grail is personalized medicine at scale, right? Indeed. But where is liquid biopsy really strong in screening? In colorectal cancer, there are some examples and some tests that allow the physician to know whether the patient could be having an adenoma, which is a 
early precursor of the colorectal cancer and will help the physician to diagnose the disease. Maybe then another technique is going to be needed, like colonoscopy. If a blood test is positive, the physician will confirm this with colonoscopy and also will use the colonoscopy at the same time maybe to remove the lesion. I think we have examples from screening to diagnosis to prognosis in breast cancer. So these treatments appear a lot less invasive than other cancer treatments, but... Does Marta see a time when blood-based biopsies or other liquid-based biopsies will replace other diagnostic tests? Yes. Well, current tests are either very expensive or they involve ionizing radiation, such as x-rays, you know, mammography and those kinds of tests. And that can also be really invasive. Thankfully, Marta does see opportunities to replace some of those tests with liquid-based biopsies. This is something that uh, everyone is thinking about, but I think still we need more time. We need mm. time to prove that these biopsy techniques are um, sensitive and specific enough to say, okay, this information is providing me mm. with something that I'm sure and I don't need to risk the mm. patient. After liquid biopsy, we need additional evidence of the disease to send the patient to surgery. Probably at some point we will be able, but uh, I think we need a bit more of time. Okay, so I'm sold on the opportunities. What are the challenges? First, it is the technical challenges of having a test that is very sensitive and very specific. Mm. So sometimes we are talking about biomarkers that are in a very, very low concentration. So we need techniques that are able to detect something that is uh, very rare or maybe sometimes is changing in, in our body. So first of all, I could say that techniques that are sensitive and specific enough. So sometimes we need to be sure that we are able to differentiate between what is a tumor and what is not. So I would say the first challenge is to get a test that is giving us a very good sensitivity and specificity. Once we have this, yes, there is some burden for regulatory approvals. In clinical trials, we need approvals because we need to care about the patient's safety, about patient's mm -hmm. rights. And then to get the tool approved and going through the market, to protect the patient, the regulator really needs testing in a lot of different aspects. What we need to demonstrate to regulatory authorities is that the test, the tool, is safe for the patient and is effective. So safety is one of the most important things and we need to cover many aspects during the clinical trials to demonstrate safety for the patient and mm -hmm. also that the test is effective. It has to be at least as effective as, as the one that we have in the market, or ideally it, it should be better, right? Um, mm -hmm. So we are doing, within clinical trials, we are doing benefit-risk analysis all the time, and you know, the outcome has to be beneficial for the patient. I think what moves me every day is that I think I'm doing some different for the patient. So um, when, when we work on clinical trials, 
first of all, we are providing the patient an opportunity to receive some new treatments or some new options that are not approved. So within my daily work, I think I make a difference just giving a patient to the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial, with, which is always good because um, it, I think it gives them an option for hope. It gives them hope. So there's a range of liquid biopsies with many different uses. Professor Rick Bryan and Dr. Douglas Ward from the Bladder Cancer Research Centre at the University of Birmingham in the UK have made a urine-based diagnostic test for bladder cancer. I'm Rick Bryan. I am a former clinical urologist. I left clinical urology in 2009 as a result of a back injury from a skiing accident and went full-time into bladder cancer research. I am now the director of the Bladder Cancer Research Centre at the University of Birmingham, which was launched in 2020, and I am professor in urothelial cancer research. And in the Bladder Cancer Research Centre here at the University of Birmingham, we have five main themes of research. We have proteomics and biomarkers, genomics and bioinformatics, novel therapeutics, biomedical engineering, and clinical research and clinical trials. I'm Doug Ward. I lead the proteomics and biomarker theme of the Bladder Cancer Research Centre at the University of Birmingham. So I've been working on cancer biomarkers for a long, long time and working on bladder cancer biomarkers with Rick for the last 10 years or so. And it was about 2014 when we started the journey, which led to the Galeas bladder cancer test, which we're going to talk about today. Okay, what is the Galeas bladder test? So this test is looking for the most common mutations that happen in bladder cancer. And they happen in the vast majority of bladder cancers. That's more than 96% of oh, them. Oh, wow. Now, remember how Marta said urine was tricky because there's all sorts of cells that contaminate the sample. Well, Rick and Doug are after exactly those cells when they're wanting to detect bladder cancer. In very simple terms, we are looking for those mutations in the urine. And the fraction of urine that we use as the basis of the Gallius bladder test is what we call the cell pellet. So when you take a urine sample and, you know, 30 milliliters is enough for our test for the vast majority of patients, 98, 99% of patients. When you take a urine sample, and if you've got a cancer in your bladder, those cells will be a mix of normal cells, the normal urothelial cells that line the bladder. There'll be a mix of healthy normal cells and also some cancer cells. So we extract the full length genomic DNA from the cell pellet of a urine sample. Now, because we're looking at the cells in the urine sample, 
those cells can only have come from the urinary tract and the urethelium. But the urethelium actually does line the urinary tract from the renal pelvis, from the, the funnel part of the kidney, all the way down the ureter and all the way into the bladder and the very first part of the urethra. So by looking at the DNA from the cells and looking for the mutations in cell pellet DNA, those mutations can only have come from the urethelium. And so by finding the mutations that are associated with urethelial cancer in the urine cell pellet, there is a very high chance that an individual will have a tumour within the urinary tract and the most likely source of that tumour or the most likely location for that tumour is the bladder. What are the biomarkers of bladder cancer then? What really enabled a a mutation-based test for bladder cancer was the discovery that the TERP promoter was mutated in 75% of bladder cancers, which was reported in 2014. And then there are other well-known frequently mutated genes such as FGFR3 and TP53. That was all known back then and since then there's been a loss of next generation sequencing of bladder cancers, the TCGA and other efforts, which have given us a lot of insight into which genes are mutated in bladder cancer. We also seek exome sequenced 100 non-muscle invasive bladder cancers ourselves So we took all of this information, all of the genes which are mutated in bladder cancer, either in our data or reported in the literature. They started sequencing these in a cohort of a thousand bladder cancer patient samples which had been archived in a biobank. The aim was to detect mutations which were frequent and present in virtually all bladder cancer patients if we took them as an ensemble, as a whole cohort, for example. But that meant we could only do a small amount of sequencing So we're only actually sequencing about 10 kilobases of DNA spread across 23 genes. Yet that means that we detect at least one mutation in at least 96% of bladder cancers, and on average, something like three mutations per bladder cancer. That's based on our survey of a thousand tumors. It means you don't have to do germline sequencing because we know all the polymorphisms or the vast majority of polymorphisms that are occurring within those 10 kilobases of sequencing. So we just have to take the urine sample and do the targeted sequencing of these 23 genes to run the test. Additionally, because it's only a very small amount of sequencing, we don't have to worry much about mutations of unknown significance, or it also helps reduce the possibility of sequencing artifacts being called as variants, the fact that it's a very focused panel. Now, being a focused panel is really advantageous. A panel is essentially the established series of diagnostic tests that you do for a condition. And if it's focused, it's better for the patient. The advantage of a urine test over the alternative, which is basically putting an endoscope into the bladder, flexible cystoscopy, are it's more pleasant and convenient for the patient. They could even potentially post in a urine sample from home. So that's probably the big win, freeing up NHS resources, making it easier for patients, 
there are other say ct dna tests out there which are tumor informed so they require you to send the samples to the company and it requires exome sequencing of the tumor and then looking for those specific mutations found in the tumor in the liquid biopsy but our test simply works on the liquid biopsy so it's only one lot of sequencing and it's a fairly targeted sequencing it's likely that it's tenfold cheaper than some of these liquid biopsy tests which require tumor sequencing now this liquid-based biopsy is for a particular cancer meaning that the liquid you're using originates in or around that cancer itself Yes, exactly. And if you were thinking about how you might expand this to other potential cancers, you're, this way of thinking, you're looking at cancers where you have cells being shared from an epithelium. So the layer of cells that protects one membrane or one, one set of cells from another skin or the insides of blood vessels and so on. And then you can use those shed cells for the genomic analysis. I suppose theoretically, another example would let head and neck cancer, where you may get cells shed into the saliva. You could collect saliva, and if you had a defined set of mutations that are that are common to most, if not all, head and neck cancers, you could take a similar approach to head and neck cancer. The the interesting thing about why we're specifically looking at the cell pellets. For the urine test, you can get a much more reliable yield of DNA from the cell pellet. Any test needs a minimum input material for it to actually work. And for Rick and Doug's urine test, that's just 25 nanograms of DNA. We reliably get 25 nanograms of DNA from over 95% of urine samples when we extract it from the urine cell pellet. Now, in the supernatant, when you've centrifuged that urine sample and you have the, the liquid floating above the cell pellet, then you do actually find DNA in the supernatant. And that's what we call cell-free DNA. And it's actually fragments of DNA. Lot tiny fragments of DNA that have been spilled by cells by various processes, but including apoptosis, programmed cell death. Those tiny fragments are about 180 base pairs long. And equally, we've tested cell-free DNA in the urine. Our test works on cell-free DNA in the urine. However, it's theoretically possible that cell-free DNA could actually come through the kidney. So actually have, have originated in the circulation elsewhere. from and it originated the circulation. And if there is a cancer elsewhere that has shed cell-free DNA into the bloodstream, it's theoretically possible that, that some of that could get through the kidney into the urine and be detected. There's an awful lot of research going on around looking at circulating tumour DNA in plasma. It's more difficult than working on bladder cancer and urine because the cancer signal is more diluted in the signals from the rest of the body. But that is a very active area of research at the moment. 
And there's evidence in bladder cancer that, particularly with more advanced disease, that DNA in the bloodstream is a useful way of tracking how patients are responding to treatments. Bladder cancer usually presents very early. Most often, it's when the patient sees blood in their urine. For bladder cancer, at the time of diagnosis, the majority of tumours are early tumours. So 75 to 80% of bladder cancers are what we call non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So those are tumours that are on average about three centimetres in diameter that are involving the most, the innermost layer of the bladder, which mm. is the, the urethelium, the epithelium mm. that lines the bladder, or have grown into the layer below, the connective tissue layer that we call the lamina propria. So those tumours are the vast majority of tumours that we, are the stage of tumours at the time of diagnosis. And although those are not immediately life-threatening, they do obviously need to be detected and managed appropriately to prevent them from becoming life-threatening. The 20 to 25% of remaining tumours are what we call muscle-invasive bladder cancer. And those are tumours where the tumour has grown from the lining of the bladder through the connective tissue and actually into the detrusor muscle, the smooth muscle that actually enables the bladder to contract and enables us to empty our bladders. Those muscle-invasive bladder tumours are life-threatening and need to be treated aggressively quickly and they have about a 50 percent five-year survival compared to a sort of 85 to 90 percent five-year survival for non-muscle invasive bladder cancers. Mm -hmm. In terms of the patient experience when could this test be applied to the diagnosis journey? In the ideal world we envisage that that referral would be accompanied by our urine test gallius bladder so the patient then arrives at the hospital for hematuria clinic and the clinician has the results of their urine test and on the day the results will determine whether they have the cystoscopy along with all the other investigations or whether they just have all the other investigations so if they have a negative urine test and if their imaging of their upper urinary tract is negative do they also need a flexible cystoscopy Patients will also frequently have a different type of urine test, urine cytology, where you look at the urine under the microscope to try and find malignant cells. And then the investigation uh, using a camera inspection of the bladder, which is called a flexible cystoscopy, which is really invasive. It's a small camera and the diameter of the camera and the tube on which it is at the end of is kind of similar to that of a disposable ballpoint pen um, and you can imagine that being inserted and how uncomfortable that must be. Uh, would not choose that. Definitely would not opt for that. But, you know, again, I'm thinking about COVID. And remember, Connor, way back in episode 58, we talked about the scientists who analyzed wastewater. Would That's there right. be grounds to do population-based screening with Gallias? Where there is interest in more targeted screening certain parts of the country certain geographical locations have higher than average incidence of bladder cancer 
for various reasons may well be related to deprivation it'll be related to cigarette smoking it may well be related to industrial exposures to known bladder carcinogens and in those populations that have a higher than average incidence of bladder cancer then actually screening patients may be a much more valid approach we see potentially our urine test being an intermediate test between detecting non-visible hematuria with maybe a dipstick and cystoscopy such that you will have non-visible hematuria you have our urine test if it's positive you then need a cystoscopy and so we have good colleagues people who we work with very closely at the university of sheffield um who are investigating exactly that hypothesis in certain areas of South Yorkshire where there is a higher than average incidence of bladder cancer. What are the next steps for Doug and Rick? Next, what they have to do is prove that this test is a solid alternative to cystoscopy, which is the gold standard today in very specific settings, and then get approval from the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, or NICE. NICE approval requires more evidence than we have generated so far. And so we are busy setting up the studies to generate that evidence so that we can present a compelling case to guideline committees or even NICE to show the benefits of using our urine test as an alternative to flexible cystoscopy. I think it's very important to say at this stage that that our urine test was developed with funding from Cancer Research UK and also with philanthropic donations to bladder cancer research at the University of Birmingham. Mm. One of the regulatory studies that we're just setting up now is also funded by Cancer Research UK. So so we are on that journey for guideline approval, possibly even nice approval. Interesting to hear how certain early symptoms can show for bladder cancer. Yes, and Rick and Doug have a super simple message. If you have blood in your urine, go see a doctor. If you see blood in your urine, that is very effective for men. We know that for women who have blood in their urine, that they are sometimes not referred as quickly as they could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we know that that leads to a, a stage migration such that they're diagnosed slightly later. We know that urinary tract infections are more common in women and in primary care it may well be that the clinician feels that urinary tract infection is more likely than bladder cancer and that can lead to delays in referral. You know, again, another possible use of our urine test is for uh, female patients in primary care where there is more uncertainty as to whether the blood in the urine is from a cancer or not. Well, no argument from me. Absolutely. Early detection is so important uh, for our health. Let's go to the What We Learned This Week 
section. Connor, you first. Yes, let's do that. And I'd ask you, dear listeners, to lend me your ears, but maybe be a little bit careful about that because... Because you you're going to have to give it back. It, well, you, I will have to give the ears back. But right. in a really interesting paper published in uh, May of this year, ear identification has come up as a real way of potentially identifying individuals by their ear shape. So Whoa. it turns out that the shape of your ear is as personal to you as the fingerprints Finger on the print? end of your fingers. Yes. So in a study of uh, almost 2,000 people um, across multiple different ethnicities, photographs of more than 1,000 individuals, because you're photographing both ears, of course, um, it was shown that you can identify an individual by the very shape of their ears and that means Whoa. that you could have all sorts of really cool like applications of this maybe we should be worried about it as well and wear earmuffs but a system that could <laughs> identify you um, from photos and videos and use CCTV cameras to identify you in public spaces um, maybe oh. earmuffs um, software that can record and match your ear shape to a database for, for forensics um i mean if you're a criminal earmuffs yeah yeah the only cool thing that i knew about ears is that they keep growing as long as we live your ears continue to get larger exactly so i wonder how they factor that in but anyway i, I mean imagine 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 having paternity proved by the shape of your ears um compared to that of your parents oh, and the child. Oh, so there could be family likenesses in <laughs> there could your quarrels? Well you never know. You never know. <laughs> Anyhow. So All that's right. what I learned. There's a lot more to an ear than just an ear. So eerie. <laughs> and Dodie, you've learned what? My thing is on this uh, rather trendy topic at the moment about return to workplace. So uh -huh. I am uh, we're having this conversation while I have been attending a conference on communications with many companies from around Europe talking about their experiences on various topics. And one of the speakers here was from the British Broadcasting Corporation, and she talked about how they have handled the new hybrid workplace. And mm -hmm. it was really interesting because, of course, as a broadcasting corporation, there are people who need to be in the studio. There are people who need to be in the newsroom. And there are also people who are doing research from home or doing other supporting work from home. And so they really tackled this hybrid workplace issue in such a fascinating way. And they they knew that they couldn't have empty office buildings or empty studios, and they really wanted to be sustainable. And so they did a couple of things, and they welcomed people back to the workplace, but they also outfitted their people leaders with certain toolkits and had just in-depth conversations. And it's, it's a fascinating study of a workplace culture changing at one of the most hallowed cultural places, I think, 
you know, in the United Kingdom, when you think of the British Broadcasting Corporation. It is, and it is uh, such an icon of you oh, know, yes. journalism around the world. And it makes me think that, you know, those ideas of like smoke-filled newsrooms with shouting editors and copy editors way back in the way day, back in the day that, that those right, don't exist the anymore. Pen and in the cap, exactly. And the, and the, and the first mm. meeting of the day, figuring out what's going to lead and so on. And and those those happen very very differently. Um, the decisions, right. the editorial decisions, and the work behind it. I mean, fascinating. The Beeb is operating in a workplace environment that we are as well, and mm. so we're all tackling these questions. So, a link to the presentation will be on in our show notes if you want to check that out do there's also a presentation from Saitiva a little self-promotion there um, and in the meantime I'll tell you that our producer is Beth Armit Brewster editing mixing supervision by Banda Productions music from Epidemic Sound my name is Dodie Axelson and I'm Connor McKechnie. Make sure you rate us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll hear from us when we come back with another episode of Discovery Matters. Thanks for listening.